This morning we're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people, and Saul's servants as well. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. What a gift and a joy it is to be gathered to this morning as a church family to worship in spirit and in truth. We just uh, pray, Lord, that as uh, Pastor Jeff brings the message this morning, that it would be both edifying, convicting. His words would be your words, that we would go in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and we'd not leave here unimpacted or unaffected, Lord, that we'd honor you in that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, brother. Well, we start there with a little summary of the whole chapter. And that really is what it is. Uh, But today we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18. The title of our message today is The Lord Was With David. The Lord Was With David. So we're going to look at an envious king and a humble warrior. Um, The man who invented the word dictator and applied it to his own rule, was a Roman general in 82 BC named Lucius Cornelius Sulla. As a general, Sulla was enormously popular among the people and among the troops. And while conducting a military campaign out in the east, (laughs) he got word that his bitter rivals, political rivals, Marius and Cinna, had taken control, political control of Rome, consumed with envy, He returned after his campaigns, and he did something no general in Rome had ever done before him, and about 33 years before Julius Caesar did it, before Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. Sulla marched on Rome to kill his rivals, Marius and Cinna, and all their political followers. After serving as Rome's first dictator and casting the die for every future tyrant to seize political control through power, Sulla eventually retired, and he actually gave power back to Rome. He gave it back to the Senate and said, okay, now you lead this country the way I've shown you how to lead it, without corruption. Eventually, uh, uh, the Senate eventually passed a law stating that no military commander or army could ever cross the Rubicon again to to assume the role as dictator, which is why it is such a big deal that Julius Caesar decided to do that uh, 33 years later. So history is littered with the stories of leaders who badly overreached in order to outdo their predecessors or to defeat their political rivals. Tyrants like Alexander the Great, Cleopatra, Henry VIII, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, all desired not only to surpass their predecessors, but actually to gain all of what their rivals had now. And so uh, all of this fueled by jealousy and envy. Envy and jealousy are feelings of discontent over the perceived success 
the possessions or the advantages and blessings of someone else, which fuels the desire to acquire the same, often accompanied by the desire for one's rivals to be deprived of that blessing. Or as C.H. Spurgeon so aptly described it, envy is the daughter of pride, the author of murder and revenge, the instigator of secret sedition and the perpetual tormentor of virtue. Envy is the filthy slime of the soul. It is a venom, a quicksilver that consumes the flesh and dries up the bones. It is a raging fever which cannot bear witness to the happiness of others. Think about that. It is a raging fever of the soul and the mind which cannot bear witness to the happiness and the blessing of others. And we all struggle with it, don't we? <laughs> we all struggle with this. Moms struggle as they see the curated lives of others on social media who seem to effortlessly manage children, work, and home life. But none of that, of course, is true. The men often struggle against envying colleagues or coworkers who have achieved a certain career success. Sometimes uh, moms struggle with this as well who have achieved a certain financial stability or recognition, and teenagers become jealous over their peers' popularity or talent or opportunities or athletic or academic success. And such is the case in our story today. The text today will present us a king who is eaten up. He is eaten up with jealousy, and it will fuel his antagonism his antagonism after God's chosen man. So we're going to talk essentially about three things today. The first one is Saul's envy. The second one is David's humility in the face of it. And overall, we're going to be talking about actually about God's sovereignty, what God is doing in the story. So let's look at Saul's envy. First Samuel 18, 6 through 9, it says, as the troops were coming back when David was returning from killing the Philistine, uh, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy and with three-stringed instruments. It was a praise fest. And as they danced, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, yay, but David his tens of thousands. And Saul was furious and resented this song. He hated this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but only credited me with thousands. <laughs> Can you hear the complainer, the complaining voice in this? What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. Now, jealousy only differs from envy slightly in that jealousy is about fearing loss of what one has, already has. While envy is about coveting what someone else has, right? But both emotions are hopelessly tangled up together. You can't really separate them. So, so Saul is both jealous for his own praises. What are his praises? Which he does receive. Saul has slain how many? His thousands, right? Thousands of Philistines. But envious for the praise of David, who has slain tens of thousands. He wants David's praise, and at some point, he decides he doesn't want David to have that. And so his jealousy has kind of morphed into this incurable envy in his soul. And so Saul's initial approval of David's success intensifies when Saul perceives David as a threat to his own reign, leading him to view David with suspicion and fear from the, for the rest of their story together. And this story illustrates how unchecked envy can turn admiration into hostility, leading 
to destructive outcomes, particularly in relationships. And so if you look at the root of envy, what is the root of envy? Well, the root of Saul's envy are three things, comparison, insecurity, and covetousness. That's the root. Desiring something that's off limits, something that God hasn't given to us. It's comparison with others. It's insecurity in myself. And then it's a covetous desire to have that thing. That's the root of it. Now, just imagine if you got a sandbox filled with uh, kids, right? And you fill that sandbox with action figures, dolls, trucks and cars, and all the things that little boys and little girls love to play with, all that stuff they love to play with. And you found these toys at a garage sale or at the thrift store, and so they're just all worn out. They're played out. The paint is rubbed off of them. Action figures are missing limbs and heads. The doll's hair is matted and half, half of it is pulled out missing shoes and accessories and all the rest, but they're playing anyway, happy in the sandbox. And then you introduce a special toy, something uniquely desirable to both little boys and little girls. And it's brand new, it's still in the package, in fact, and you give the toy to a random child. You just pick any child and say, here, this one is for you. What do you think is going to happen? Suddenly, you're going to see the light in the eyes diminish for all these broken, jacked-up toys. And they're going to begin to fight over that new toy, that new thing that's shiny in the package. This, look, folks, this is just in the heart. We can't help it. We can't help but respond this way. Even little kids do it. So the root of our envy and our jealousy is comparison with what others have been given and the insecurity that we don't have enough, and then the covetous, lustful desire to get that thing that has been given to someone else. But what is the fruit of it? What is the fruit of it? The fruit of Saul's uh, envy and jealousy is suspicion, just living in with suspicious minds, which morphs into antagonism and aggression and constant fear. Now he has constant fear of losing to David what he already has. And this is no way to live. Notice what the text says, starting in verse 10. It says, the next day an evil spirit sent from God. So now God, whether you believe in the permissive will of God or God's predestinating will, that God has just allotted this person this evil spirit, there is a spirit that is causing him harm. It is causing him harm. And so this evil spirit sent from God came powerfully on Saul and he began to rave inside of the palace. Imagine this now. He's walking around just breaking stuff, just having a tantrum, just losing his mind over David's success. And then David was playing the lyre, his guitar, as usual, but Saul was, happened to be holding a spear. Not good. And he threw it thinking I'll pin David to the wall, but David got away from him twice. So this happened two times. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but the Lord had left Saul. Therefore, Saul sent David away from him and, and made him commander over a thousand men. David led the troops and continued to be successful in all the activities because the Lord was with him. Take note of that. When Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. He just dreaded the sight of him. You see, if the root of envy and jealousy is comparison and insecurity and covetousness, then the fruit of it is antagonism. It's fear. 
It's aggression and scheming. It's just no way to live. So how do we resist envy? Because we deal with this temptation as well. How do we do it? Let me share some keys. First of all, we must practice reflexive, habitual gratitude. Reflexive, knee-jerk, habitual gratitude. We must become obsessed with being this kind of person. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 7. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Think about it. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. That's the gold, right? We want to become that kind of person, the kind of person who lives godly with contentment, because Paul says that's worth more than all your earthly possessions. How do we get there? We practice habitual, reflexive, knee-jerk, automatic gratitude. We become obsessed with being grateful people. Now, notice what Paul says in Romans 1, 18. What's the definition of worship? Now, Paul, uh, he paints this picture of the pagan nations who have gone after false gods, gone after their idols, and they've rejected God. They no longer are worshipers of God. They're worshipers of false gods. And what does he say there? Romans 18 through 30, what does he describe false worship as? He says, they refuse to acknowledge God and to give him thanks. That's the essence of worship. That's the essence of a life of worship is to acknowledge who God is, who God is, and then to give him thanks for all that he has supplied us. And a life of habitual gratitude is a life of worship. An obsession with being grateful for what God has done and given given us, inoculates us from the virulent strains of envy and strife because it produces in us a godly, contented heart. Secondly, we must uh, rejoice with those who are blessed. Do you find this hard? I have a person in my life, I won't name her, but she has a hard time with this. But we must learn to rejoice with those who are blessed. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What is he saying? Practice empathy. Biblical Christian empathy, what is it? Well, it's being able to resonate with the sentiments or resonate with the emotions that another person is is trying to lay on you. And so a good experiment with this uh, that researchers have done is they've taken two grand pianos and put them in the same room. And if you, what they found is if you strike a chord on one grand piano or a note, the same string on the unmanned piano will vibrate. And that is called sympathetic resonance. And this is what Paul is saying. Practice being sympathetic. Practice this kind of sympathetic resonance. Uh, res, uh, resonance. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn and practice becoming a person who rejoices with those who are blessed. Let this just define you. Next, we must rest in who God has made us and what he's given us. We we must rest, rest in whom God has made you and what he's given you. We must rest in this. Now, think of Paul's situation in Corinth to illustrate this. Paul had planted this church. The church was growing and thriving. It was very exciting church to be in, a very exciting worship environment to be in, a bit chaotic. Paul had to correct them, and they had some other problems. And, but word had gotten back to Paul that, that a lot of people in the church were criticizing him. They were criticizing him 
for two things. One, here's what they said. This is the criticism. He's very impressive in his writings, like in his letters and his correspondences. He's very impressive. He uses high rhetoric. He's very good. But in person, meh, not so much. He's really not as impressive as all of our Greek philosophers and Greek orators, like our professional speakers. And Paul said, you're right. And here's why God did that. So that when I came and preached the gospel to you in the power of the Holy Spirit, you could never attribute your faith to the gifts and the talents of men. You could never do that. And this is what Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Paul, Paul has learned to rest in who God has made him and what God has given him. And he's not worried about what God hasn't given him. And this is the secret. This is the secret. God has taken the weak things of this world to shame the strong. <clears throat> he's taken the foolish little rabbi from Jerusalem and shamed the so-called wise philosophers of this age. And folks, we must practice reflexive, habitual gratitude. We must learn to rejoice with those who rejoice, rejoice with those who are blessed. And we must rest in the person that God has made us and what he's given us. Mastering these skills is the secret to a contented and godly life. And it's the antidote to a miserable life of strife, jealousy, and envy. Oh, if only Saul would have known this, his life would have been so much better. Let's talk about David's humility. So in the midst of this, what Saul is doing, David clearly is still just the guy from Bethlehem, and he knows it. It says in verses 15 through 30, <clears throat> when Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he was leading their troops. Saul told David, here's my oldest daughter, Merab. I'll, I'll give her to you as, as a wife if you will be a warrior for me and, and fight the Lord's battles. But Saul was thinking, uh, I don't need to raise a hand against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So his, now his life is just characterized by scheming, right? And then David responded, well, who am I? And what is my, my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? And when it was time uh, to give Saul's daughter Merab to David, she was already given to Adriel, his, his miho, the miholathite, as a wife. And, and now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, right? She's the younger one, I suppose. And, and when it was reported to Saul, it pleased him. I'll give her to him, Saul thought. She'll be a trap for him, and the hand of the Philistines will be against him. See, he is just, he is obsessed his life is overtaken with this scheming against David. So Saul said to David a second time, you can become my son-in-law now. Saul then ordered his servants, speak to David in private and tell him, look, the king is pleased with you and all his servants love you. Therefore, you should become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants report, reported these words directly to David, but he replied, is it a trivial thing? Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Look, I'm a poor commoner. I know who I am. The servants reported back to Saul. These are the words David spoke. And then Saul replied, oh, okay, say this to David. This is just a comical scene here. Take this message back to him. The king desires no other bride price except a hundred Philistine foreskins. Super gross. <laughs> to take revenge 
on his enemies. And actually, Saul intended to cause David's death at the hand of the Philistines. He wants to keep his hands looking clean. In reality, he wants the Philistines to take David out to do the work, his dirty work for him. And David's character is clearly on display in the text. And while it may not seem obvious at first, a closer look reveals that really he's exhibiting a kind of instinctive humility. In verse 18, he rejects the author of Merab, Saul's daughter, because he is convinced of his own insignificance. You, you might say, well, this is just false humility. I don't think it is. What we, I think what it tells us is that David really hasn't allowed any of the victories to go to his head. The, the praise songs in the streets about him killing tens of thousands, they're not puffing up his head. David just still does see himself as that young shepherd boy, the least in his family, from the least tribe in Israel, from the small podunk town, backwater Bethlehem. In verse 23, he doesn't treat weighty matters flippantly. Notice that he never treats weighty matters flippantly. He actually asks the king, is it trivial? For a commoner like me to become the, son in, the son-in-law of the king of Israel? And this will characterize David's life for the most part for the rest of his life, sure. He has lapses in judgment. He will at times give in to his sinful nature and his impulses and his passions, showing that he is just like any other person. But on balance, David is a man after God's own heart, and he doesn't take serious things lightly. In chapters 18 through 26, David never retaliates against Saul, even when he has Saul dead to rights. Saul, in one story, is relieving himself in a cave. This is while Saul is pursuing David, hunting him to the death, and David is hiding behind a rock and has him within sword's length and could kill him while he is relieving himself. You're never more vulnerable than that, folks, other than sleeping. And then later, David will point out to him, listen, I had you dead to rights, man, and I didn't kill you because I respect the office. For the rest of his life, David will treat things that are holy, things that are important, things that are sacred as if they are sacred. Later, there's this weird story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when an incident occurs with the Ark of the Covenant. It's being brought back, being brought back to Israel, and it's on this cart, this being pulled by a donkey. And so these donkeys are pulling this cart, right? And, and the ark is on there. And then they hit a pothole, and the whole thing just kind of wobbles. And this guy named Uzzah, Uzak, he reaches up to steady the cart. And when he touches that sacred object, he falls dead. He dies for touching the ark of the covenant. And what happens? David leads the whole nation in a revival of fearing the Lord. David never treats the holy as profane. David doesn't treat the important flippantly or with contempt. That's humility. That's what the humble heart does. Verses 26 through 27, he honors a wicked request, trusting himself to the Lord. Despite Saul's evil intentions to harm him, to get him out of the way by sending him to the front lines to the Philistines, David humbly accepts the challenge and he goes the extra mile. He doesn't bellyache over how dangerous the mission is. He doesn't go around to his troops and gossiping about what a terrible leader Saul is to ingratiate himself to them. No, he just humbly gets up and gets the job done. 
David is a man after God's own heart, and he, is a, he shows, he exhibits humility in the face of this envious, prideful king. So how do we emulate David's humility? Well, like David, we must humbly submit to authority. We must humbly submit to authority even when we don't like it. Even if those in authority over us are clearly godless self-promoters. Uh, David doesn't take this opportunity to lead a coup. Instead, he humbly lives in the space that the sovereign Lord has given him in this moment. And this is not some blind allegiance to some flawed person. No, this is an expression of his allegiance to God as he considers the interests of others. He considers Saul's interests because those interests are of the kingdom. And he wants the kingdom to flourish and to be rid, the land to be rid of their enemies. And so I am struck time and again by David's willingness to submit to Saul until it was absolutely impossible for him to do so. And that's the key. He submits to Saul until it is absolutely impossible for him to do so. And we are told in the New Testament, Paul writes, Pastor Titus, and he writes his fellow pastor, his young protege, and he says in chapter three, he says, remind them that as believers, Christians, to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too, remember, remember, we too were once foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy. Envy doesn't keep very good company, does it? Hateful detesting one another. And you can correlate this with what something Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. He says, honor everyone. First of all, first rule, honor everybody. Doesn't matter who they are. Even the people you don't like. Love the brotherhood. This is how you do it. You love the brothers and the sisters in Christ. You love them. You fear God. You honor the emperor. Who was the emperor? Nero, the worst emperor ever. <laughs> the worst emperor, arguably, that Rome ever had, particularly in terms of his persecution of Christians and Jews. And so Paul and Peter advise us to be obedient citizens, respecting governing authorities and honoring the office that they hold, not necessarily the man, but the office. He doesn't say honor Nero, he says honor the emperor. That's an office. And they encourage empathy toward those who may be misguided or disobedient to God's word, enslaved to their sinful natures and passions. Remember when we were like that? Remember when we used to think the way they did? They do now? Remember that. And so uh, we submit to those in positions of authority in obedience to God's word, provided they do not command what God forbids or forbid what God commands. And that's where civil obedience stops. If they forbid what God commands or they command what God forbids, and then we say, nope, we don't follow you. Notice that what David does is he, he submits to Saul, this evil king. He submits to his authority until the moment that he absolutely cannot do it anymore. What about the church? Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. It would be unprofitable for you uh, to grieve your leaders by just constantly bucking them, right? So he says to the leaders, he defines them. He says, these are shepherds. These are people who keep watch over the flock. They keep watch 
over your souls. That's shepherding language. And their responsibility is to keep watch over your souls because they know that they are going to report to God someday. They know that they are going to give an account for how they've pastored and how they've led and how they've worked for the Lord and how they've cared for you. But your job is to obey your leaders as they set the vision and the direction of the church. Submit to their teaching, submit to their leadership. And there will come a time when David engages in civil disobedience because Saul forces him to do it. He has no other choice, but that time is not now. He humbles himself and he submits to the office, even though the man holding the office is frankly evil and has ill intentions toward him. And next, we must always attribute our success to God. We must never, never forget who gives the victory. <laughs> David never forgets this. He never forgets this. Remember verse 14, echoed in verse 28, David continued to have success in all his military campaigns, campaigns because the Lord was with him. Saul will say it again in verse 28. It's quite clear that the Lord is with this young man. Later, David will sing this in Psalm chapter 20. He will say, now I know. I don't believe, I don't think, I'm not conjecturing. I know that the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories from his right hand. Some take pride in their chariots and some take pride in their horses and their military apparatus. But we take pride in the name of the Lord, our God. The humble heart doesn't get swept up in their own PR and the praises of men. The humble heart, no matter how gifted, no matter how blessed, no matter how successful, knows that everything of value comes from God. Every victory, every bountiful crop, all the abundance, it comes from the Lord. And he triumphs in accomplishing his will and his purposes. And what's our response? Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, our lives in humility are to be characterized by a life of habitual, perpetual thanksgiving to God because it is He who gives the victory. Amen? Next, we should receive gifts that God desires for us. We should readily receive the gifts that the Lord desires of us. At, at first, His humility will not allow Him to accept the first daughter, Merab, Missing that opportunity, he is then offered Michal, who the text says, makes it clear, is just fawning all over David. She is a fangirl. She has posters of him all over her room. The songs of David praise reverberating in the streets. David learns to tune it out because he knows better. He knows that he's the least of Jesse's sons. He knows that he's from nowhere, from a small, insignificant tribe. He knows what is true. If it were not for the Lord, I would have none of these triumphs, none. But eventually, he humbles himself and accepts Michal as his wife, and he receives the gifts offered, even if they are offered with ulterior motives. And surely, Saul is offering them with ulterior motives. Let me ask you a question. It's a weird question. Kind of strange, but I'm going to ask it. Are you humble enough to receive help, support, a gift? I, I have to 
be honest with you, this is something in my life that I have always struggled with. I've never really struggled so much with envy, but I've really struggled re- with receiving help. I, I, I remember I had this old Isuzu Trooper when I lived in Minneapolis, and I was driving this old clunker around, and it kept breaking down. I kept being late for church. I kept being late for meetings, and I was a pastor on staff, so this was not good. And there was a guy in our church who was a mechanic, and he said, man, I can help you with that. I mean, I can fix that. I know what's wrong with it. I, I'm pretty sure I know what's wrong with it. I can fix it. And you know what I did as a young guy in my 20s? I was like, no, no, man, I got that. I got it. I do not, this is what I know how to do on a car. Turn the key and step on the gas and steer it. That's what I know about a car. I can't, you're like, well, just change the fuses. I don't know where they are. I didn't know all cars had fuses. And so I have struggled in my life to just receive gifts, to receive help, to ask for help when it is needed and when it is necessary. This is one of my most difficult things to do in my life that I've struggled with. And, and I've thought at length, why do I struggle with this sometimes? Well, it's because I place a high value in my independence and my self-reliance. That's my pride. Accepting gifts from people or help from other people or assistance makes me feel dependent on them, and my prideful, sinful nature doesn't want to feel that way. I also sometimes fear that accepting generosity will obligate me to them. I feel ingratiated, you know, like I just feel sort of, it's the, it's the principle of reciprocity, reciprocity. And in my sinful flesh, I don't want to live with the sense of indebtedness to someone else. I'm like, no, I got it. I'll take care of that. I often can resist help or an offer of support because of deep fear and insecurity. There's a fear in my prideful heart that I'll be found out as an imposter, that others will discover the charade that I'm not this self-sufficient, competent person that I like to project. That's my sin. And I often recoil from the discomfort that attention can bring. I, I just don't want the attention And that is especially true of a person who's an introvert and a person who's uh, very private. That that can be true of them. And so, but here's the truth I must face. Here it is. There is no offer of help, support, and no gift ever given to me that could ever outweigh or match the magnitude of Jesus' saving grace. So why won't I just accept help? from others. You see, the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And if Christ reconciled us while we were enemies of the cross, how much more, now having been reconciled, will we be saved by faith through him? You couldn't receive a greater gift uh, than that because you don't have a greater area of vulnerability and need. So why not just accept the help? And what I love about this story is there's a point at which David just accepts the gift. He says, okay, I'll take Michal, fangirl, I'll take her, and she can be my wife. And it's the humble person who is willing to receive those blessings when offered, when available, and when necessary. We have a clear contrast between Saul's envy and strife and his life of misery, because that's what it causes. It causes a life of misery, and David's humility and his faithfulness to the Lord, which brings him, as David, uh, Daniel said earlier, it brings us joy. It's the, it's the root of our joy, humility and faithfulness. And we have a clear sovereign affirmation of David as God's choice. David makes good on the promise of his calling because he is a man of humility who humbly respects the authority of his king, flawed though he, as he may be. 
He humbly attributes his successes to God, never forgetting where he came from. And he unassumingly just receives the gifts and the goodness offered to him, knowing that ultimately everything comes from the hand of the Lord. And God is good, even though it is being delivered to him through a godless king who is tormented with his own sins. A godless king with ill intentions, a man who is becoming smaller by the day through his sin. So the question from the text for us today is, whose life will you emulate? Which path of the two paths that are set before you will you follow? Do you harbor envy in your heart right now? Have you just not confessed it to the Lord? Are you walking around just kind of angry at people? feeling feelings of aggression because you don't have that thing that you think you should have and others are being blessed and they're passing you? Or maybe it looks like they're blessed more. Whose, whose path will you take? Whose life will you emulate? Whose example will we follow today? Let's close our time in prayer. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. God, we know that in your sovereign providence, David's story mirrors your f- a future son who will inherit your kingdom and the whole earth. Jesus of Nazareth, born into the world, God's son and God the son and the son of David. He also was chosen and anointed as king. He also was the good shepherd of the flock. He also humbled himself and was found in appearance as a man and took on on himself the punishment that belonged to us. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Lord, we know that behind the scenes of this story and all the intricacies and all the intrigue of it, that there is a sovereign God who is working, leading us to Jesus. And we also know sitting here this morning, Lord, that You are leading us in the intricacies and the intrigue of our own lives to you, to faith, to release and relinquish our grip on things, to let go of our envy and our strife, to embrace the way of of a humble heart and faithfulness to God. And so, Lord, we want to commit ourselves to that end today. This morning, we commit ourselves to it. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, can I tell you, don't wait. Do not wait another day. Do not wait another minute. Submit and surrender your heart to the King, the Son of God, who is God the Son. Will you do it? Will you confess your sins and let him wash you clean, cleanse you and forgive you of all unrighteousness? Will you do it this morning? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.